0: That's it. You call me out of
1: morning. It's good to have you here this morning. Why don't you take a minute before you sit down and greet those around you. It's great to have you here this morning. Just a couple of quick uh, notes from our bulletin, things going on. Next week, we have our Sunday school picnic. You can read about that in the bulletin. Love to have you all there right after church next Sunday. Uh, we want to celebrate with Nate and Eileen Jacoby at the birth of their daughter this past Wednesday, Ruth Ann. We're grateful for God's blessing to us and to them for, for her life. And uh, if you would remember, Wes and Cindy as are on vacation uh, today and just that they would have a restful time and we're grateful for them as well so
2: Thank you. You may be seated. The Old Testament scripture this morning comes from Psalm 130, a song of ascent. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning more than the watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is the word of the Lord. Would you stand with me as the ushers come forward to collect our tithes and offerings? Our gracious God, we thank you for so many things. We thank you for this hour to worship you. We thank you for the lives that you've given us and for the many, many ways that you've blessed us and pray that you would help us as we give a portion back to you for the the furthering of your kingdom in this world. Amen. You may be seated.
3: be thrown into the midst of the sea, through it all.
2: New Testament reading comes from Mark 5, and so I would invite you to stand as we hear the words of Mark 5:21 to 43. Following the scripture reading, the children who are 2 to 5 may be released for children's church. Mark 5. When Jesus had crossed again over by the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went into where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished, and he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord.
4: I'm grateful that the weather is uh, not overly hot. I was afraid I might have to take off my coat. It makes me always look like a Mormon missionary. (laughs) We don't want that. If I could have that slide, please. Next one. Okay, here. here's what we're looking for. I, uh, I took this photograph about four years ago on one of our visits to my hometown in Arizona. Jennifer had flown out from Philly to join us, and we came across this sign as we were visiting a favorite hiking spot of mine in the Catalina Mountains just north of Tucson. As we hiked our way on foot out of the canyon that day, Jennifer and Nancy were a bit spooked, warily surveying the walls of the canyon looking for a really big cat. I was lagging behind taking photographs assuring them that if the lion actually appeared, that I would do my very best to shoo him away after I got my photo. (laughs) They were strangely unenthusiastic about my plan. Now this sort of thing happens quite often in the desert in times of drought. The drier the weather is, the lower the animals have to come down and descend in order to find water they they have absolutely no desire to confront humans but if they don't find water they will die so what this sign indicates more than anything else is desperation animals take huge risk when they're desperate This was poignantly brought home to me a while back. I was watching Animal Planet, and they did a story there about a coyote in the middle of downtown Chicago. It was in the middle of a brutal heat wave. People were dying, in fact. And one day, in the middle of downtown Chicago, a coyote appears and runs into a deli and jumps into the beverage cooler and just stays there. This animal knew that it was in great peril. And so it pushed aside all of its natural aversions to human contact and it went into the deli to get its body heat down. Needless to say, within a few moments, it had the deli all to itself. (laughs) But the utter desperation of this animal to find relief from the threat of that fatal heat caused it to take risks that it would not normally take. If you're desperate enough... Risky behavior starts to look rather plausible. And it's this link between desperation and risk that intrigues me so about this well known story in Mark's gospel. This is a story about desperate people, people who are flat out of options. So in their desperation, they each take a risk that ends up changing their lives. Interestingly, they couldn't be more different from one another. They represent the proverbial other side of the tracks to one another. One of them comes from what we would have to assume is the upper echelons of first century society. A leader of a local synagogue named Jairus, he is one of the very few people actually named in Mark's gospel. He is likely a man of some economic means. He has standing in the community. But he also has a sick child. And disease is no respecter of socioeconomic class. And so Jairus, this religious VIP, finds himself in a desperate situation. And, in, and that desperation leads him to find his way to this controversial rabbi from Nazareth named Jesus. There are widely divergent opinions about this man, Jesus. And as a synagogue leader, Jairus would certainly be aware of the fact that there are members of the Jewish religious hierarchy who are not very approving of Jesus and who wouldn't look kindly upon his courting of Jesus. But what are his options? His daughter is dying and he's desperate. And so casting caution to the wind, this respectable Jewish leader finds his way to Jesus and falls at his feet, begging him to come to his home and heal his sick child. This is the act of a desperate man who knows that Jesus is his last resort. Jairus's relief must almost be palpable as Jesus agrees to go with him to his home. He is hopeful that his risk will be rewarded and he begins to lead Jesus through the streets toward his home and his dying child. But it is not easy going because the streets are filled with people who are pushing and shoving, trying to get a better look at Jesus. And it's at this point that a second character enters this narrative. And this character could not be more unlike Jairus. She, yes, she's a woman, unnamed. She belongs anonymously to the crowd. She is without status. She is without anyone to defend her. She has no one to lobby her case as Jairus has for his own daughter. Mark, who is well known for his brevity, goes into what for him is extraordinary detail as he spares no hyperbole for her destitution. She has had a flow of blood for 12 years. She's suffered much under the care of many different physicians. She's spent everything she has, and she has not benefited from it at all. And in fact, she has grown worse. She is a person whose life has been condemned to the absolute margins of society because of her illness. As a result of this woman's physical condition, she should, according to Levitical Purity Code, be perpetually segregated. She is the epitome of a social pariah. But here she is taking this huge risk, even being among the crowd. They could turn on her. But she is not content to simply be one of the crowd. She determines that she will touch this rabbi in order that she might be healed. Apparently, she has an almost magical conception of Jesus. But it's obvious that her simple faith here supplements what is lacking in her sound theology. And that's a humbling reminder to all of us who think that theology is rightly so important that God looks at our hearts and not at our minds. And so in her desperation, she doubles down on her risky behavior, strategically placing herself amidst the crowd so that she can reach out and touch this enigmatic teacher as he passes by. Touching Jesus is her last resort. Mark says that immediately her issue of blood was dried up and she perceived in her body that she was cured. And then he says immediately Jesus perceived that power had gone out from him. From the absolute bottom of the social scale, this woman intrudes upon an important mission on behalf of the daughter of someone at the very top of the social scale. And now she herself has become the daughter at the center of this story. Because Jesus looks at her and says, my daughter, your faith has made you whole. Jesus is portrayed here acting in such a way that it breaks all the rules and expectations of the honor culture of that day. While responding appropriately to the request of this socially important man, Jesus allows himself to be delayed, fatally it appears, by a woman who resides at the absolute bottom of the scale of social respectability. Surely, Jesus' compassion here towards one of society's untouchables is meant to say something to us profoundly significant regarding the nature of the kingdom that he proclaims and models. But the story isn't over yet. There's Jairus. I can't help but wonder about poor Jairus standing there in agony watching this unexpected delay of his last, best hope for saving his daughter's life. Does he resent this woman's uninvited intrusion into his own personal emergency? We're not told. What we are told is that soon after this spontaneous healing in the streets, word comes that it's too late, that the little girl has died. That Jairus' big risk, that his his swing for the fences, if you will, has all been for naught. Jesus senses the emotional deflation of the moment and tells the devastated father, don't be afraid, just believe. I, I, I can't imagine what went through his mind as they continued the journey to his house. But when they arrive, everything there appears as if death has indeed won the day. The cultural tradition of wailing mourners is in full display. Jesus appears almost perplexed by all this commotion. He is unable to grasp why people would be mourning, whereas he tells the crowd, the girl is just asleep. When they hear that, the mourners quickly become mockers. They know that death always wins. Death is undefeated. But Jesus bounces all of the skeptics out of the house and he takes the parents and the three disciples into the room and he says in Aramaic, little girl, arise. And this desperate father sees his risk of last resort rewarded as he witnesses firsthand the awakening of his daughter. Now, any way you look at it, this is a classic gospel story. I'd like to attempt to do a little bit of application here with you, and I want to do that by simply bringing four questions to this text. Question one, what might this text be telling us about God? Literally, this story centers around Jesus. God isn't even mentioned. But I contend with you that Jesus is demonstrating here for us what God is like. In fact, the whole point of Mark's gospel is to help us see that to speak about God and Jesus is, in one important respect, a distinction without a difference. God, as it happens, is extremely responsive to human desperation. Have you ever noticed in the Gospels how desperate people get Jesus' attention? Not just here in this story, but throughout the Gospels. It's the blind guy who will not shut up when he hears that Jesus is close by. It's the Syrophoenician woman who refuses to be ignored. It's the leprous man insistent on making his dream of being healed, known to Jesus. It is the penitent woman ignoring the possibility of being humiliated yet again who washes Jesus' feet with her tears. Even in Jesus' teachings, it's the widow lady who endlessly pesters the judge who receives justice. It's the neighbor pounding on the door at midnight seeking bread for an unexpected guest. What all this tells us, I think, is that God's heart has a special place in it for human beings who grasp their helplessness who fall on their faces before him, asking him to do what only he can do. The primal story of salvation in the Old Testament is, of course, the Exodus. It is the story of desperate people crying out to God for deliverance. In Exodus 3, the Lord says to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned because of their suffering. And so I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians. Jairus and this unnamed woman are privy here to the acts of God. Jesus is just being himself here. He is being his God self, if you will. It's little wonder that on one occasion Jesus said to people around him, I only do what I see my father doing. What Jesus does here in Mark chapter 5 is a continuation of what God has been doing for human beings from the beginning of time. This story underscores the fact that with God, the last shall be first, that God is no respecter of persons, but it also shows us that grace and mercy are not zero sum qual- qualities. This woman's healing does not mean that Jairus walks away empty handed. No, there is grace and mercy enough for all. Second question. What might this text tell us about humankind? The short answer is that we're broken. That we are often cast into desperate situations without any recourse except to throw ourselves upon the mercy of our Father who is in heaven. In my early days here as Houghton pastor, I had several people who served as important mentors in my life. One day I was with one of those mentors who shall remain nameless, except I will say that he was extremely verbally abusive to me on the tennis courts. <clears throat> I, I don't remember the exact context of our conversation, but I remember at one point he looked at me and he said, Walters, Remember this, everybody has a burden, and he is right. It's part of the human condition. Every one of us has a hidden place of hurt or anxiety that can ultimately paint us into a cul-de-sac of desperation. Mark is being graphically honest here in chapter 5 about our human predicament. These are two people from opposite sides of the track, but both find themselves in situations beyond their capacity to fix. And I have been there, and you have been there, and some of you may be there right now. It's part of what it means to be human. Third question, what might this text say to the church? Well, I think it reminds us that we need to cultivate an atmosphere where people can confess their hurts and their brokenness, where people can come and find sanctuary in times of desperation. It is cliche but true that the church in reality is a hospital for those in need of healing. It is not a health spa designed to cater to the whims of the spiritually elite. I'll confess that this story has made me wonder a lot in the last few days about the current state of the modern church with regards to desperate people who are just out of options. Is the contemporary church a place where these people would legitimately consider turning to for help? And if it isn't, why? Why not? At the risk of being terribly misunderstood, I'll just say this. I fear that a lot of Christian worship today has taken on the flavor of contrived celebration. Now don't get me wrong, to be sure there's much we have to celebrate. But what about the complicated lives of so many people? People who are hurting, people who are desperate, people who are out of options. What does the gospel have to say to those folks? Is there a place in modern Christian worship for them? A few years ago, I was in Southern California, and I had to stay over a Sunday, so I attended a large Southern California megachurch. I won't tell you which one it was, but the whole time I was there, I kept thinking about that cowboy song, I'm back in the saddle again. Now let me assure you, this is a great church. It does many wonderful things. But I sat there in one of the several venues on this campus with a couple thousand other people that day, and everything in this service was geared toward people who seemed to have it absolutely together and whose lives were just overflowing with joy. And I remember thinking, I got to believe that in a crowd of this size, there's at least some who don't experience that. Does everybody here relate to that? I'm frankly troubled by the loss of lament in contemporary worship. So much of what passes for worship is little more than engineered enthusiasm. I think that's why the Psalms are such a necessary part of our worship. They keep us honest. Psalm 130 that we read earlier Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. On any given Sunday, there are people sitting next to you in church who find themselves in the deep end of the pool and who cannot likely praise their way out of it. They need to find the sanctuary of God's compassion and mercy. Finally, what might this text be saying to you? I think that Mark is demonstrating here the truth that the gospel willingly goes into the darkness of human experience. I think that's underscored in Mark chapter 5 by the healing of this demon-possessed man that immediately precedes this story. The gospel does not carefully pick and choose its candidates like some snobby Ivy League school of the spirit. This story underscores that there are times where those with great burdens must find their way to Jesus. They must touch his garments. They must plead with him to come with them into their homes and heal their families. That's the sentiment that we see in Psalm 130. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. I never really grasped that line about watchmen waiting for the morning until I read an essay from a Vietnam veteran. And he talked about being on sentry duty as a 19-year-old kid. Standing watch there in absolute terror through the nighttime hours on the perimeter of that camp. Knowing that danger lurked out there somewhere talking about how his eyes would play tricks on him as he peered into the darkness. But more than anything, he talked about waiting and hoping and longing for the sun to come up so that in the daylight, he could actually believe that he was safe. That's desperation. You've been there? Final verse of Psalm 130 says, Israel People of God, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. This story in Mark 5, along with the 130th Psalm, is part of the lectionary text for the fifth Sunday after Pentecost. I was somewhat hesitant to take this on when I first saw it. Part of my hesitancy went to what I might call street cred. I mean, there's a real credibility gap with me talking about desperation. I'm not at all confident that my life's experiences are are adequate in any way to communicate what I really want to communicate in this sermon. I'm not sure that I can even pretend to know the kind of desperation that we see here in these two people. In all honesty, I have lived pretty much a charmed life. And so when I saw that, I, my first impression was to avoid this passage. But as it happens, I'm a preacher, which means that I am compelled by the text, uh, not by the serendipities of one particular existential journey. But the broader reason that I hesitated here is I knew, I mean, this is summer Sabbath, This is sort of supposed to be a big celebration, and so it occurred to me that a story about desperation might not speak to everyone. I suspect there are some of you here today who, right now, you you have life by the tail, as it were. Everything's just going swimmingly. I would say enjoy it while it lasts. Because things will change. But I also know that some of you sitting here today don't have life by the tail. As a matter of fact, as a long-time pastor, I well know that churches have a whole lot more desperate people sitting in them every week than most appearances would seem to indicate. They inhabit the crowd anonymously like the woman in our story but the good news is is that perhaps today they might reach out and touch the savior amen
1: we're gonna go before the lord in prayer And as is our practice, the altar is open. I invite you to join me as we bring our needs to the Lord. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning because you alone are God. You alone have the words of life. You are the living water that our weary souls thirst for. And Jesus, we need your touch. In this moment of silence, Lord, we open our hearts and our lives to you. And we bring to you those things that weigh heavily upon us. Thank you, Father, for hearing and being responsive to our needs. Lord, we also lift up to you those in our community who are in need today. Those suffering grief and pain, heartache, insecurity, worry. Those dealing with illness and failure and loss. We remember specifically Florence Tuber and Warren Woolsey, Bunny Austin, Mike Raybuck, Jill Tyson, Bruce Brenneman, Bev Rett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Crystal Blake, and Emily Crickler. Father, we ask that you would be close to each one, that they would know your healing, your peace, your comfort, your courage, Father, and your strength. Lord, we know that you love this world that you've created far more than we do. You love every person in it without exception. And we struggle at times, Lord, to make sense out of a world that appears to be drifting away from you, further into sin and corruption, toward violence and apathy and loneliness and despair. And we recognize, Lord Jesus, that the only hope for this world is in you. Shape us, Father, into the people that you would have us to be. Help us to be your hands and your feet in a world that desperately needs your touch. Lord, we also lift up to you those that you have called to go out from us and to minister in other parts of the world. We think especially today of those from our community who are working in the Muslim community. Father, we lift these up to you and ask that you would bless them. Please protect them, encourage them, and provide for them. May they know your presence with them in each moment. Finally, we lift up to you our brothers and sisters under persecution in Turkmenistan. We pray for your people there, that you would bless and encourage them in spite of the ordeals that they daily face. May each one be very aware of your sustaining presence with them. Lord, give them courage and strength and peace. We thank you, Lord, for hearing us. Give us the patience to trust you for every answer in your way and in your time. We pray this through the wonderful and glorious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
3: Please stand and join us as we sing.
0: Morning by morning, I wake up to find the power and comfort of God's hand and mine. Season by season, I watch him
1: receive the benediction. May we recognize our desperate need for Jesus. May we reach out for him and be healed. Amen.